I bring you a message from the intergalactic I know you don't have time to talk to your plants. So I'm going to talk to them for you. You can go on about your business, whether that's to class or the office, or fixing dinner, or making wine. Don't worry. They'll listen to me. Let's begin. See? Now we're recording. It's that easy. We have a robot that does it for us. Uh, robots are good. Alright. Um, hi, Mike. Hi, Max. Uh, Hi, Silas. Hi, Silas. <laughs> Hi, Silas. Perfect. We got Silas on the on the intergalactic railroad today, uh, calling in from a far distant desert planet uh, to talk to us about how to power a technological civilization without reverse terraforming the Earth, because that's what we're doing right now, right? We're turning the Earth into Mars by using fossil fuels to re- destroy the atmosphere. Exactly. And you think that I, I had suggested maybe we would have to descend energy wise, like in the amount of energy we use. And you don't think we have to descend. We you've done the numbers. Yep. We can just uh we can just what are we gonna run the planet on if it's not old dead dinosaurs? Um so basically, um uh there's a few different concepts that are all kind of uh converging together to work in synergy here. Um and uh uh, but the basic idea, if you uh, have studied permaculture and old uh, agricultural techniques at all, is you combine uh, like civil pasture food production uh, with coppice agroforestry and this bit of technology uh, that was developed back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution known as wood gasification. Um, okay. Coppice, and, wait. Well, civil pasture, coppicing, and... Wood gasification? Yes, and I'll go into explaining all of those, uh, but you know, I'm just getting an upfront summary, and then I'll <laughs> dive deep into each part of those and talk about how they connect together. Okay, um, thank you. So, um, uh, but basically you end up with um, this system uh, which is uh, like, you know, concentrated uh, photothermal energy which in, instead of concentrating uh, solar energy over space using mirrors, the way our you know current highly engineered systems do it, and uh, then you know have like Wait. these negative uh, environmental externalities such as like lighting birds on fire. In you know the, the lighting air. birds on fire thing is kind of funny. That's the best thing about those giant <laughs> like mirror farms that point solar at it. How does it work? It's like a tower with solar like, collectors salt? are straight up a cartoon invention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like you end up with these areas of, or volumes, I should say, of like extremely high solar flux, and you know the birds like just fly, not knowing there's any sort of danger, and then they just enter this area of like really high solar flux, and all of a sudden they're like you know at several thousand degrees, and they just like ignite <laughs> say- on fire, okay. and like fall to the ground dead. Right? They call them screamers in the industry. They call yeah. them screamers. Screamers. Right? Streamers, because they're flying it like you know maybe you know twenty miles an hour or something like that, right? And they, they ignite on fire. And now like they don't just fall straight down to the ground. It's like this arc of flame. Wow. It's like a shooting um, star, but of death. Yes. Right? Wow. So, that is that is. 
streamers. We are all streamers now. <laughs> Twitch <Wait>, streamer. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's, okay. that's so, brutal. So you don't like look, that. I get it. No, no. I, th I think that's like a horrible tragedy when it comes to like looking at things from an ecological perspective. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, if you instead of taking like the you know reductive uh, science approach of you know optimizing each piece of our infrastructure separately and trying to make each piece as efficient as possible, um, you instead take a, uh, like a holistic approach um, to designing our infrastructure in such a way that uh, um, everything works together and you optimize it as a, a total system, a dynamic system. And you end up uh, uh, doing much better in terms of, uh, like, you know, uh, capturing the energy as it flows uh, from a highly ordered state to, you know, a high energy state. This um, is the part of the podcast where it's very important for me to ask you what you think about free energy. Uh, <laughs> depends on what you mean by free energy. Are you saying like? Okay, uh, that's like, the right answer. Like... <laughs> that's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I believe free energy. Energy is not a criminal, man. <laughs> there, there's a lot of different ways to interpret that question. <laughs> as long as you don't just have one fixated way of interpreting the question that is going to take this into Looney Town. Then... <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely do that if you want, right? I mean, I mean, you know, I'm I, interested. I, I'm still don't understand why it's called the schoolgirl circuit, but uh, <laughs> that's that does, sounds terrible, doesn't it? That's the basic free energy device. When people start telling you about this stuff, anyway, we were on actual science. We had an actual scientist. Vertices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk actual science. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. It just has to be asked just, because we're way nuts. Yeah. A little bit about my background, right? It's like, um, um, yes, please. Early on in my life, I I decided that I, you know, you know, in order to feel like a successful human being, I needed to leave this uh, this planet in a better state than I found it. Um, and, you know, stopped wanting to be a venture capitalist and, and started going into the, the hard sciences. Um, went to um, uh, Caltech for applied physics, um, trying to, like, optimize our, our uh, energy production systems so that, like, you know, decrease air pollution and all that kind of stuff. Um, eventually figured out that uh, that wasn't the right approach and kind of switched tracks towards ecology. Um, studied permaculture for many, many years. It's actually where I met Max at, was at a, a permaculture design course. Um, That's true. Yeah, on, on Tatooine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, so um, I'm well-versed in both, uh, you know, reductive and holistic science. Um, and so what I'm talking about here is a more holistic approach um, so I had mentioned, uh, like kind of the antithesis of what I'm talking about with the, you know, concentrated, uh, photothermal power over space using mirrors. And what the system is that we're trying to talk about right now is, uh, more concentrating photothermal energy over time using trees. Sick. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and that you know, is what trees, we're supposed to be talking about. Yes. And the trees have very positive uh, um, externalities, right? When you talk about, like, you know, uh, externalities in the econ economic sense, right? So 
like the, you know, you're planting trees, the trees are providing habitat for birds, right? This, the birds are sitting on the, at the base of the trees. You know, this is all like extremely synergistic stuff, right? Um, you're producing food, you're producing fiber, you're producing medicine. If you're, if you're doing the system right, you're not planting a monoculture, you're planting a, you know, wide diversity of, you know, plants and stocking it with animals. So you have like a fully, uh, functional intact ecosystem, right? You're actually driving uh, ecological succession away from the deserts and towards a closed canopy forest. And if you look at um, the biological efficiency of conversion of solar energy into biomass, right? Um, you see an, pardon me, you see an upward trend of increase in efficiency and increase in diversity as you move from desert to grassland to savanna. There's right? like more more green shit for to absorb the sun, right? Like more layers of green well, shit. Well, it's, it's, it's not even about just the green shit, right? It's just mm -hmm. about uh, like the amount of solar energy that is getting captured and where that ends up, right? It's like, you know, deserts are pretty inefficient, right? There's not a whole lot growing. There's, you still have some animal mass. Um, grasslands, you know, you get, you know, a lot more coverage of the green shit, which is, you know, ultimately where, where it gets captured, but you only have a single layer, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have the, the vertical stack of your, you know, shrubs and understory, overstory trees, right? Vines and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's just the grasslands. Um, from there, like you start getting, um, you know, trees in the mix, the soil ecology starts moving more from a bacterial dominated uh, soil ecology to like a mixture of uh, a bacterial and fungal um, uh, dominated ecology. Mm. Um, and if you just like walk away from, you know, these uh, savanna type ecosystems and let them like continue on their own, uh, ecological succession will drive it to a closed canopy forest. And in that instance, when you have, when the canopy closes, what you see is actually a very significant drop in solar efficiency conversion of biomass and uh, biodiversity. As the really? overstory trees close their canopies, right, there's less light. Yeah, there's less light to get down to the understory and the shrubs and the, the grasses. You don't get any more grass growth. If you walk into like a, you know, old growth forest, like the, you know, you get like ferns yeah. and stuff like that, right? Right, but there but actually the, is like a low amount of food on the ground. If you ever try to live in a forest, there's like yeah, berries. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's, uh, and, and at that point, the uh, soil ecology is, is uh, pretty much entirely fungally dominated, right? Um, okay. And okay. We'll, we'll get more into that kind of stuff later when we, you know, start talking more about like you know hardcore ecology. Uh, but to you know kind of focus back more on you know the energy production stuff. Um, the in order to keep uh, you know the system in that savanna sweet spot, right, where you have you know the highest biodiversity and the highest solar efficiency conversion of biomass, you need to cut wood. Um, and let light back down into the lower layers. Um, okay. and I love so, cutting wood. Um, there's different Literally. ways of doing this. Like, you know, you can cut old growth trees. Um, you know, you want to kind of stay away from uh, the mother trees, which are like the biggest, oldest of the trees in the mycelial, uh, you know, forest network. 
yeah. uh, because they're they're the ones that have the longest memory um, and like uh, uh, essentially have already seen like all the catastrophes that can happen and know the strategies for survival. Um, the trees are, or the mycelium in them. The the old well the older the tree like, the tree itself. You talking about like epigenetic factors, or are you talking about like I guess the total tree? Huh? Oh, so like, so uh, plants are intelligent, right? The brains <laughs> of plants. Yeah, the right. brains of plants are the root system, right? And with mycorrhizal fungi knitting the trees together into a forest, you in, you essentially have a large superorganism that has its own consciousness, right? So the, the trees are individual sentient beings, but the forest itself is also sentient. Um, and the, the oldest of the trees in that mycelial network um, have the strategies for surviving catastrophe. That's right. Um, and so the younger trees, when, are, when they're being faced with a ca catastrophe that has been seen by the mother trees, the mother trees can actually inform them of how to survive this event because they've seen it before. There's, yeah. there's actual real communication that's going on and happening. Um, and this is all, that's all really, really cool stuff. And I'm, I'm going to totally dive back down into the deep ecology later. Um, superorganisms, that's another very, very fascinating topic. Um, but getting back to the energy production stuff. Um, so so the trees things. are sentient and you're talking about chopping some of them. Just to be, to be so, clear. So it's, it's, it's not killing them. There's different ways of forestry <laughs> management, right? It's like, uh, um, uh, there's people that have, you know, like, uh, they're pretty deeply intuitive, uh, foresters that have spent a lot of time observing and they will actually kill some trees, um, in their livelihood, but they're, they, uh, specifically stay away from the mother trees because they're the most important nodes in the network. Oh yeah. I was um, just having and, this conversation with someone yesterday where I think about, uh, a lot of times I'm more comfortable around plants than I am around people. And then yesterday, somehow, somehow it flipped where I was like, wait a minute, plants are really nice. Just treat people like plants and then they're nice too. And it's fine. And sometimes you have to weed them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, you had me in the first half, <laughs> but it, it's such a weird uh, relationship that we have with uh, interspecies. Um, you know, all of ecology is such a fascinating thing where you want to, you have like these deep emotional connections and then somehow we're just totally okay with just killing shit that's not human <laughs> and then like and, and yet anyway well i mean that's, that's actually a, a very uh important functional part of ecology too right it's like you can't yeah. uh let populations um you know grow unimpeded there's always something that utilizes them and transforms their energy into another form of energy. Right? <laughs> oh man, I'm looking out my window at a like, city full of people just like hiding in their little dirty houses, just like cooking in the sun uh, and trying to avoid the thing that showed up to take advantage of the situation that we have created. <laughs> yeah. Trying yeah. to prevent ecological succession. Yep. <laughs> I mean, for, for a long time, humanity has been operating under this delusion that we're separate from nature, and we've been fighting this protracted war against nature. And yeah. it's it's something that is absolutely false. Like you know, there's no way for us to be separate from the ecology. Um, and fighting a war against nature is actually just fighting a war against ourselves, right? It's like we you know create we set ourselves up 
in an ecological niche of like this like super parasite essentially. And uh, what you know, my my thought is that we need to uh, change our niche and become a super symbiote, right? I think you in know, a lot of ways we are a super yeah, so, uh, some sort of slime of God. <laughs> um, I think in a so, lot of ways we already are like a super symbiote, uh, or maybe I mean like the to our to the client species we are to the cats yeah. backyards are yep. awesome. They've created yep. like little, we've created little kill zones for them to lord it over, and not allow any like complicated life forms that could eat cats into the city. Um, so, yeah, but yes, niche building so, is the, the the term for that, right? So okay. we're really good at establishing niches, and we've essentially picked uh, various symbiotes that we want to take along with us. Um, or they picked us, our, like camp followers. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like dogs, cats, like all of the farm animals, uh, plants even, like, you know, most, most of the food that you get in the grocery store, uh, in the grocery stores is, uh, they are, um, uh, what's, what's the word, um, domesticated plants, right? It's like, you, you know, you go and try to, like, spread broccoli seeds around on the ground, and they're not going to grow unless you are tending them, right? They are, they've uh, lost their wild. They are domesticated species. Yeah, they're much less uh, hardy than a wild mustard. Yeah. Okay, wait. I want to go back to the to the coppicing and okay. gasification. Yeah, fuel stuff. Wait, there's yeah, something so, in the middle. Silvopasture. What's silvopasture? Okay, so silvopasture um, is a agricultural mimic of an oak savanna ecosystem. Right, so it's, uh, and the um, savanna ecosystems are literally defined as 30 to 60% tree cover with grassland in between that, mm-hmm. and um, the large proportion of the biomass is concentrated into large roaming herbivores that are kept packed closely together and moving in the landscape by apex predators. The buffalo. Um, and well, yeah, the buffalo and the, you know, the, the wolf packs or like, you know, and if you look at the savannas in Africa, like, you know, you got the zebras and, you know, um, lions and, you know, hyenas and, right. Um, Wild horses, cows now in North America. Yeah. Um, so Not- if you look, the cows in North America are entirely dysfunctional. Like the way we are yeah. doing uh, livestock management uh, currently what you see is like these big fence pastures and the cows will just spread out across the whole pasture, right? And they, you know, mosey around eating their most favorite thing that grows and to the exclusion of other things. And then, so they eat all that down and when it starts to regrow, they eat it again and then that kills the root, right? And then, so now that favorite thing is gone and they move on to their next favorite thing and they continue to do this until you're in a desert. And at the, right. in the meantime, so, the people that, I mean, down where I'm at, like the biggest ecological disaster of the last hundred years was probably when people started running cattle, they started ripping out all the loco weed. And yep. loco weed is a nitrogen fixing crawling vetch that like covers and maintains the soil out here and just goes anywhere if it if you don't stop it, except that everyone stopped it because it was killing the horses and cattle. So when yep, we and, and, kill wolves wolves would make the you think wolves would successfully make cows like herd up tighter is that what you're getting at that is that is exactly the point right so if if you don't allow um like if, if there's pred- a predation pressure on herd animals 
they instinctively pack together into a close group, which essentially uh, is a survival strategy to like you know protect any one individual, right? And they try to keep their young, like you know, more towards the center of the pack, right, or the herd together. And then uh, when you get a group of apex predators that like you know starts like you know running at them, then the the herd will stampede, right? And then the pre uh, predators will capture the weakest. Uh, slowest member of the species or perhaps one that was sick that day, right? And so in that way, the uh, predators are actually providing a service for the long-term uh, health and, you know, um, genetics of that herd species, right? The, the you know, the prey species. Um, it's like they're weeding out the weak, they're weeding out the sick, right? So the, the genes okay. that survived are the ones that go on. So the you know, then, you know, into the future, it's, you know, stronger species, right? Um, this is where Trofim Lysenko would say that genetics are inherently uh, reactionary and that yeah. what is actually happening is a dynamic dialectical relationship between the wolf and the, and the cattle or the uh, buffalo. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in there. Please continue. Yeah, so if, uh, you know, going back to Silvopasture, right, so... Um, we've killed off, you know, the apex predators in, in North America and, and most places. I mean, there's, uh, they're starting to return. We have uh, mountain lions here in Southern California. We're starting to get bears back again. Uh, we do have one breeding wolf pack uh, that has made its way into Northern California. Um, but, you know, we've done a really, really good job in the past of killing all these things that made us feel like we were not at the, the, the top of the food pyramid, right? Um, well, we were, they were in our niche. We needed that yeah. niche. And you know, that's, actually, that's niche. actually what I'm getting at right now is that in a silvopasture, right, it's, it's the humans that take that niche of apex predators. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily want to be out there all day, like, you know, menacing the herd and keeping them <laughs> packed together. Um, I know people who yeah, do. But, <laughs> Some people love well, to menace you know, the fucking herd. <laughs> <laughs> Crime um, correspondent on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, goats correspondent will be out there menacing the herd in a very calm and loving fashion. Um, oh, okay, so, so what? So we get we we get robots past, to do we've it. gotten or you know dogs right oh, yeah, have been you know traditionally used in that fashion, um, and uh, there are other ways of doing it. So like you can kind of uh, just mimic the dynamic. Because right, ultimately, the goal is not necessarily to menace the herd. It's, the goal is to keep them packed closely together and moving in the landscape so that they eat everything in front of them indiscriminately. They're eating all the vegetation down, and it's a long time before they see any one particular spot again, right? Um, and this allows, you know... Um, everything to fully recover um and of course they're dropping their poop everywhere as they go so they're you know adding nitrogen back to the soil um and uh, uh this term is uh talked about uh as mob grazing basically mob right? grazing. So, yeah so they're using mob grazing techniques in the silvopasture um and using like electronet fences to, to keep them packed closely together and after like you know a few hours in one spot they actually have have it on like a, a robotic timer where like one edge of the fence will just drop down and expose a new area of you know fresh lush uh you know food source form and they just move right into it 
right? So over you know a period of a day, right, you have like maybe like three or four of these these fences will just drop automatically, and they just move along. Um, and then you know that evening you go and you you move the fencing for the next day. Um, and so the way the silver pastures are typically designed is that uh, there's a little bit of earthworks that happen ahead of time. Uh, just for like water management, so they're either you know doing like a, a you know key line uh, plow subsoil ripper um, that's just uh, on you know kind of just off contour in the landscape, so that water that is flowing down uh, downhill will drop into these deep soil channels and then move from the valleys towards the ridges. Right, um, I always think like about a one percent slope. Right. Key, line, key line slope is like what I think about is like a kitchen counter and how when you like drip some water on it, it doesn't just go everywhere all the way down right away, but it does inevitably go to a certain spot on the counter. Yes. So, so, so the basic idea with the, the key line uh, design is that you want to like evenly hydrate both the ridges and the valleys. Um, so like you preferentially move the water um, at a higher level to the, the ridges and let it move to the valleys through the soil, right? Because it's, it's going to flow, like as, as it, the water sinks into the soil, it's still going to flow downhill, right? right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to move towards the valleys, but just at a very, very slow rate. And so, that's, on um, a, that's an earthworks that you do to the area that you're going to silvo pasture. Exactly, right? And then uh, uh, along those key lines, uh, they're, you know, essentially along those key line rips, and then on, later on down the slope where you're no longer doing that water management, you basically like just on contour in the landscape. So at a single elevation line are essentially the uh, curvilinear rows that you plant your trees in, right? So they're not like these straight lines, uh, but you do have space in between these rows. Um, and that space in between the rows is what, you know, is constitutes that, you know, kind of like the grassland area of the, the, the savannah, right? Mm -hmm. um, and these and rows are like topological, they're like a topographical map, right? Exactly. Circling around each other. Yep. Um, okay. So that, that's what I meant by on contour, right? So like uh -huh. if, you, if you look at, you know, um, these systems from the air, it, it does look like a topographical map. Um, and uh, uh, the space in between the trees is where you would grow, you know, pasture grasses for grazing your animals or, uh, you know, potentially even like, you know, annual crops um, that you're planting, like, you know, your, your brassicas, kale, broccoli, what, what have you, um, uh, you know, lettuce. Right. Meta, whatever, meta whatever else that we you want. Eat. Yep. Um, and then uh, the trees, of course, like, you know, would be predominantly like, you know, uh, food producing species, like, you know, fruits, nuts, that kind of thing. But then also, uh, like nitrogen fixing support species uh, would be mixed in, in with their, um, to, you know, help the overall, uh, you know, production of the system. And if you walk away from this, what you'll end up with is like this closed canopy food forest, right? And that's not what you want because, again, that drops the biodiversity, drops the solar efficiency uh, conversion to biomass. Right, so um, you know that means you periodically you need to go in and you need to cut trees, and so this is uh, bringing us to uh, coppice techniques, um, which if you look at the history of uh, agroforestry in uh, the UK, 
um, this was something that was very, very common uh, back prior to the Industrial Revolution. And uh, at that point in time, wood was coppicing their primary... Was, was cut. Cop, coppicing was, was their primary uh, way of producing fuel, right? So everybody heated their houses with wood. I just finally made the wood. connection between... You were talking about the roots being the brain of the tree. And yep. you, know, you just keep the roots around and it keeps coming back with the same tree that's... Yep, and that's exactly how coppicing works, is that, um, so, the list of trees that this will not work, work with is actually a very short list. And some, some trees uh, will, you can successfully coppice well outside of the range that I'm, I'm going to be talking about here, um, but the general rule of thumb for uh, when to coppice a tree successfully is when it is between four and six inches in diameter at breast height, right? So go stand next to the tree, draw a line, you know, at your nipples, and, you know, if the, the tree is four to six inches in diameter um, at that height, then it's, it's a prime candidate to get chopped down, right? And you can cut it down to a stump, like, you know, and it will right. rapidly, yes, rapidly regrow from the roots. And if it's a food producti uh, productive species, like, you know, a fruit or a nut or something like that, um, you're only going to lose uh, two years of production off of that tree before it's like, you know, you're getting bumper crops off of it again, right? So it's not like wow. regrowing from a seed or regrowing from like a, uh, you know, um, a small plant that you got in a nursery. Yeah, where it's going to take you seven to ten years before you start seeing a yield. Right. Oh, that's uh, so, cool. when, so you could actually just you rotate that then year out exactly, here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's exactly where I'm going with this. Right. So um, it's all uh, coming together now. <laughs> right. In, in the silver pasture. Right. It's like okay. Well, uh, this year I'm gonna cut this curvilinear row of trees. Right. And then I'm gonna go down six or seven rows. And I'm going to cut that row of trees. And I'm going to go down six or seven rows, and I'm going to cut that row of trees. Right? And then the next year, then you essentially just move down, you know, you step it down one. So that the next, you know, the rows that you didn't touch, right, are going to, are going to get cut. And so it's six or seven years before you cut the same tree again. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so... Silas, you cut out. And then you gasify the trees to make the electricity to fly the drones to menace the herd. And then the herd runs away to fucking... Are you seeing the same uh, relationship of, like, wolves and cows to Mormons and city people? Uh -huh. like, uh, like weird the desert militiamen? <laughs> The the, like, the the Bundys are the wolves in this situation? Yeah, like just menacing. They don't even get that you don't you know, they don't like actually threaten the existence of cities, but they're menacing all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually right. some of them get got by a stampeding herd of city people. <laughs> but yeah, or sometimes they have to come in and, and start picking off city people and then they get yeah, they get surrounded and destroyed, trampled. The yeah. the, the, the McVeigh model. But uh, what we don't have is the cities can't just pick up and move places. I'm actually a huge fan of that idea. I've, I've always liked that aesthetically. I don't know if it's mm. uh, I don't know if it's like reasonable ecologically. We're gonna have to figure that out when uh, Mr. Z when Zandor gets back. Um, yeah. 
but let me give him, shoot him the, the first uh, the first time I went on another person's podcast, my computer ran out of batteries, and I ran around the house trying to find my computer charger for about ten minutes, and uh, got back to them eventually. So it's entirely possible that. Um, yeah, it's that's, a, that's anything just could happen. have happened. Possibly the Mormons got him. <laughs> Picked him <laughs> off for talking about it. Yeah. No, I mean, I like this idea. I'm I'm interested in this. He's going to come back on. All right. I'm interested in in this uh, process. It seems like it a great thing that, to do in the the uh, North American landmass, but it's going to be. I'm confused about um, how we would do it on a spacecraft. I guess we just have to have a really big spacecraft. Well, yeah. Like, oh, okay, uh, there we go. Hey, there you are. All right. right. Okay, so where so, did I cut out? Uh, you were you were uh, telling saying that's exactly. Together. Yeah, it was all coming together. You you're gonna coppice the trees uh, on so you a get the rolling trees. scale. Rolling then, wave. Rolling, rolling wave. Six or seven year rotation. Yep. yep, okay. So you get this rolling wave in the landscape of where your overstory trees are and where light is penetrating down into the lower levels. Um, and, and you're producing like a constant supply of very highly dense cellulose material that is just packed with solar energy, right? That you've concentrated over time growing these trees. That's all these trees. That's all this wood. Yep. Um, it's like fossil fuels, same- but on a short scale yeah, it's not fossil right it's concentrated <laughs> they, yeah it's not never fresh. never fossilized they're, it's they're, not, it's, never fossilized <laughs> always fresh never fossil yeah uh, this <laughs> li- living living energy right um, trees man i'm all about burning trees and so, you know so, I mean. so um uh with all this in mind now uh we get to wood gasification Okay, so this is a technology which was developed back in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and saw renewed interest in further development uh, during both World War One and World War II during the petroleum shortages. Um, and the basic idea is that it's, it's kind of like petroleum refining and that you're superheating organic matter in the absence of oxygen to crack the hydrocarbon bonds down into component gases. And basically you're just using wood as the feedstock rather than crude oil, right? Um, and what you get out of wood gasification is primarily hydrogen gas. That's the, the primary constituent of the ga- gas output. Uh, the secondary component is uh, uh, carbon monoxide gas, which in addition to being highly toxic, um, is also explosively flammable, right? So that, that carbon, really? that CO molecule oh. really, really wants that other oxygen. Right? Oh, shit, yeah. right. And so, we're okay. going to give it to him. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, and then on top of that, then you get water vapor and then small amounts of CO2, right? So you run the, the gas output through a water trap filter to recondense the uh, water vapor mm-hmm. and also to trap any like uh, um, uh, like oils or something like that that didn't get cracked fully um, just to prevent like your engine from gumming up, right? And you can run the output directly into an internal combustion engine, right? So you can actually drive vehicles on wood gas 
and fast like that's actually what the the uh, the primary use of them during the petroleum shortages was was people started converting uh, their their cars and trucks and delivery oh, trucks to run on I've wood seen gas. like a a French a picture of a French bus from World War One era that's got just like a balloon the the size of a bus on top of the bus like that's, a bladder. That's, that's a pretty big pretty big like uh you know typically these uh these reaction vessels are they're like you know kind of like these fat cylinders maybe um two to two and a half feet in diameter by like four feet tall um this is the, like, where the fire it, is where the combustion is happening or not the combustion yeah, well, the gasification yeah that's where the gasification is happening and so you you'll yeah. like see them outfitted like on the bumper of a car like the rear bumper of a car or something like that um, so this won't this still pump carbon dioxide into the air, causing so uh, okay so, so right so think about this right so what is happening here is that you're taking um, carbon dioxide out of the air by growing trees, right, mm -hmm. and then uh, you're putting some of it back into the air um, by you know using it as your fuel source, right. However, and most of it is uh, in the roots and soil yeah. well well there's there's that uh. um that's going on but at the same time uh the other major output from the wood gasification um process is large amounts of super high quality extremely porous activated charcoal which is a uh, it's like a matrix of pure carbon right oh and yeah the black shit that comes out yeah, so you have this solid mass of black. pure carbon with a really high uh, pore space, right? So it's very, it's like, you know, very light, um, but uh, voluminous at the same time. So it's a very, like, you know, um, um, amazing uh, material that itself has a lot of uses and ec economic value, right? So, the, uh, like, one thing that is really, really um well suited for this activated charcoal is it makes an amazing water filter right so it it uh, they actually use it in chemistry labs uh to like purify um you know a lot of their you know stuff right, right. so like you make the deionized wa deionized water um for doing the reactions in or for purifying you know the products of the reactions um it gets used a lot in the uh, cosmetic industry as like a base for their cosmetics. Um, uh, this, is, and this is what people call biochar? It, yeah, uh, uh, well, biochar is a lot of different things, right? And uh, biochar- this is just activated charcoal. Activated charcoal can be considered biochar, um, but biochar is not necessarily activated charcoal. Right, so activated charcoal is uh, like a really super high quality biochar, right? So uh, bio, the term biochar can in, in, incorporate uh, various amounts of oils and uh, terpenes and uh, uh, tars and stuff that are still present in the matrix. Um, whereas activated charcoal has all that stuff driven off and you have just this matrix of pure carbon. Is it so um, good for like burying in soil? Exactly. Right. Soil. So that's that's okay. that's where I'm getting at. Is like you know, another you know huge use of this is to put it right back in the ground as a soil amendment, right? And what it does is it provides a, a home for microorganisms, right? That really highly porous uh, makeup of that state of charcoal holds water and uh, provides a site for uh, bacteria and fungi 
to exist, um, you know, say when you have a drought, right? And the top layers of the soil start drying out. Um, this, this allows them to survive in a uh, functional state um, through that drought. Nice. And where, whereas like uh, without it present in the soil, like your bacteria are going to go into a dormant state known as an endospore. And your, your fungus is going to like die off, but you're still going to have fungal spores spread out throughout the system. Right. You and be able to when the water comes back, survive. Exactly. Right. So, so when the waters come back without, you know, when you actually have like, you know, fully dry soil, you know, like there's no kind of functional ecology, at least not in the upper le levels of the soil where you need it. And so the waters come the back. Yeah, when the waters come back, it takes time for those endospores to wake up. It takes time for the fungal spores to germinate and start growing and mate and all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas if the activated charcoal is present in the soil, providing that, that you know, that space, you end up with like these nucleation points throughout the soil where everything's still alive and then it can just rapidly proliferate from there. This is right? what and, we are trying to be as a podcast during the quarantine. In proliferation, <laughs> proliferation points so that as soon as the quarantine is over, the fucking begins. Yep, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, you, you, you can see now how yeah. all this stuff kind of fits together in this, this very highly synergistic way. You know, these seemingly kind of disconnected pieces, they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Um, into a, you know, a dynamic system, self-supporting system, right? So yeah, my so question, the, my the, question then was you, like, okay, well, will this scale, right? Like I've heard like, you know, all these permaculturalists saying that like, you know, we need to face energy descent and there's no way that we can do it without, you know, uh, reducing our energy needs. And, you know, it's like, well, is that true? Right. So, uh, you know, again, you know, I do have this, this background in, uh, you know, science and engineering. So, you know, I started, you know, playing around with it. Right. And it's like, okay, well, you know, go out there and, and start researching and find out what data is available. Uh, it turns out like, uh, California keeps extremely good records of energy usage by county. And so I chose, uh, LA County as kind of like the litmus test because they, you know, have really high population density. Um, plus, you know, big industrial uh, sectors um, that, you know, use a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. um, LA County and, includes LA, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, looking at the historical data um, for energy usage, it turned out that the, uh, the peak uh, energy usage, uh, like instantaneous energy demand for LA County was back in November of 2014, 2015. Uh, I forget off the top of my head. It's in my paper, but um, uh, basically, I used that number and said, "Okay, well, let's assume that we need to produce that all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Um, you need to be producing that amount of energy, right? So that gave me, uh, um, you know, essentially like it's a pretty easy conversion from uh, like energy instantaneously to uh, power need over time, right? So now I have a I have the power target that I need to meet." And it's like, okay, well, uh, how much energy is stored in a volume of wood, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, BTUs or joules or whatever, how much energy, actual heat energy is present. Right. Cause um, different and, woods burn at different amounts of energy, like, uh, yes. like a madrone tree versus like a, a, a juniper. Yep. And engineering toolbox, uh, which is this website that has, you know, a lot of data, um, oh. actually has like a pretty good 
you know, oh, list shit. of trees. Like not every every tree was like you know listed there, but it, it gave. I have you know, seen this website. <laughs> yeah, I've started it, doing this math before, and turns out I don't have a physics degree. <laughs> and, so so the uh, uh, you know. I, I kind of chose like uh, Osage orange as like uh, you know the primary wood, uh, just because like it has like a really high uh, BTU per kilogram, and like uh, starting out with uh, the model, like I wanted to kind of simplify things and you know essentially like uh, uh, assume uh, you know kind of like a monoculture at this point in time, and then you know do uh, various things to add like a large amount of conservative bias to offset that. Um, um, but just in developing the model, like I wanted to keep it a little simpler. Um, so assumed Osage orange, um, and then it's like, okay, well, uh, how much wood is produced over a you know period of time? Like you know, in terms of volume, uh, uh, how often can you cut the same tree? Or you know, what's the recommended you know coppice rotation essentially? Um, and then basically like, you know, now I have all this data and I'm like, okay, well, the question I'm trying to ask is how many acres of silvopasture would we require in order to constantly produce this, you know, target power to run LA, right? How many and, acres? Um, so they answer like, you know, when playing with the model, um, and, uh, you know, sometimes assuming apple, uh, monoculture. Uh, sometimes assuming like you know chestnut, sometimes assuming Osage orange, um, uh, and then looking at like you know whether or not we're using co-generated heat and power, which we'll get back to in a minute. Um, you know, kind of like, like factors and all this. Okay, um, and uh, um, the answer was uh, you know pretty consistently on the order of a million acres, which sounds like a lot. Which, you know, it kind of sounds like a lot, but it's, it's uh, uh, you know, L.A. County itself is 3 million acres in size, right? Yeah. So, and it, this doesn't need to happen at the county because the, you know, the That's wood like form. like the Bundy Ridge. Yeah, so like the, the, yeah. um, like the fuel ridges, is, yeah. is <laughs> in a solid, solid form in terms of wood. So it's pretty easy to like chip it and dry it somewhere else and then truck it into, you know, where you're going to use it. Um, and those trucks can even run on the wood. Mm -hmm. right? Nice. Um, so the um, uh, what did you know kind of come out when playing with the model is that the co-generated heat and power is pretty key um, because, like you know, the limitations on uh, heat engines in terms of thermal dynamics, like the at reasonable thermal gradients, uh, you're looking at like about forty percent efficiency conversion of heat to electricity. Which means that you're throwing away 60% of that energy into uh, like a waste heat, right? So Wait. if you're doing uh, like you know this you know remote power it, production, you're talking on about the any grid, engines, heat and any heat engine, yes. So like you know whether it's an internal combustion engine or a turbine or a Stirling engine or whatever, you're limited by the Carnot cycle as being Told like you. Uh, you, you know as far as being the Told like, you Stirling the, engines, Mike. Told you they're just the same as other heat engines. <laughs> and they're not free energy. Yeah, the, the Sterling engine is essentially the ideal, right? And uh, oh. previously, uh, previously that is like the you know essentially the ideal limit. And you're, you're I told you, Max. You're still still <laughs> only you're still only forty percent efficient, right? You're, you know even with the yeah. Sterling engine, you're, you're throwing away sixty percent. 
Right, and yeah, that's half it, of it becomes 10% mechanical friction or something. Or no, it's it's, it's uh, it has to do with uh, uh, you know the the way in which you're uh, extracting work energy from uh, you know an ideal gas. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It, you're you're limited by thermodynamics is the issue. Um, uh, okay, I got uh, I got four minutes left. Correct. Okay. I hate being limited by thermodynamics. That's what the first law I want to break is thermodynamics, if I can. But um, what uh, what we combine heat and power is what, and then what do you want to uh, where do we where do we go from here to help you achieve? Okay, this? so so the idea is that you want to uh, you know rebuild the infrastructure, and uh, my idea is uh, um, to essentially like you know essentially start building houses, right? It's like, you you know, pick a piece of property that is on the edge of the suburbs that's going to become tract houses in 10 years anyway, right? Buy that piece of property, develop it as like a, a like, you know, permacultured suburb landscape, right? And include this infrastructure in there, right? So you actually have, you know, a power plant in the neighborhood, like that is designed for that neighborhood. And you're in, in addition to distributing the electricity, you're also distributing hot water or low pressure steam directly to the houses, right? So all, all of your heating, um, um, like the clothes dryer is the number one energy uh, usage appliance in all houses because it takes, it, you know, it's like you can't make it more efficient because it just takes that much energy to evaporate water, right? Right, um, and it takes that, you so, lose that much in turning electricity into heat. Yep, and so so just redesign the uh, the clothes dryers to run off of uh, you know steam or hot water um, to make their the heat in the heat exchanger uh, into air inside the dryer, right? So you're making direct use of that heat energy that would have been wasted, right? So wherever Isn't there a place like you know, like in, in Sweden or somewhere that does this, no, uh, Amsterdam. Well, most most European countries uh, use radiators inside their house to heat their house, right? Mm -hmm. so they're actually using their hot water heater to uh, heat their house, right? And so, uh, in this situation, you actually have a central hot water heater for the whole neighborhood, right? You don't have individual water heaters anymore because you're just producing, you know, uh, uh, abundance of this heat energy, right? You know, you can right, store it in like heat, heated swimming pools and stuff like that. Like as like you know, just kind of like a a battery, like a like a sink, a place to store like any you know additional energy at the end. Right? This whole this whole conversation, I've been imagining like how the hell are you gonna get the the pastoralist militiamen out in Utah to go along with this plan? Now only now I realize that it's not them you have to worry about. It's the fucking homeowners association on the edge of the suburbs. <laughs> well, so so it's it's actually better than that because you're buying the land, right? You become the homeowners the association, <laughs> right? So you you write all the you bylaws. You with stuff. other homeowners associations. You can structure this however you want, right? It's like a, you know, it could be like a co-op where, like, uh, uh, you know, in addition to buying this house, you are also buying shares in the homeowners association, which is exporting energy to the grid. And exporting food to the market around it, right? So not only you know are you purchasing this house, but you're also uh, produce uh, you know buying yeah. into possible future dividends from this this co-op company. The means of production of fruits and power. I mean, yeah. that's pretty cool. 
How do um, uh, where like, do you want to plug? I gotta I gotta run. Oh, yeah. okay, you so, guys can so, you guys can do a bonus after this if you want to talk about Sterling engines or whatnot. Um, so so the uh, um, thing I wanted to plug is a friend of mine, Cody Harrison, a really smart dude that I met at Permaculture Voices Two, which is a conference, uh, permaculture conference. Um, he uh, has been running this uh, company, uh, ironically named Corona LLC. For a number of years, uh, doing <laughs> we stand in, environmental uh, restoration and uh, ecological uh, consulting, um, and is uh, trying to start a co-op uh, company right now. Uh, basically, like you know, uh, the the initial target market is energy production uh, with uh, uh, using some solar panels and whatnot to get the foot foot in the door. But the idea is to buy land. And eventually do uh, you know this stuff that I'm talking about, right? It's like you actually develop the land into a neighborhood, uh, use that as a demonstration site uh, to like get people interested, um, and start actually producing, like you know, become a, a home developer company that is also producing food, producing fuel, pr producing fiber, producing medicine, uh, selling houses, um, and yeah, uh, we're looking for people to uh, um, kind of join up. Um, so how did they contact we, you? Um, let's see. Uh, you or contact, contact your friend Cody Harrison. Uh, well, look, just look up uh, Corona uh, LLC, and <laughs> you should be able to find them. All right. Um, uh, oh, and no. I'm sure sure that uh, I'm gonna have future conversations with you guys, so uh, I'll find out like um, you know what his preferred contacts uh, mode is, aside from you know whatever okay. he has listed on his website, um, and I'll share that at a later date. Um, the um, the, the general model that we're going for, I highly recommend going out and reading the short story Mana uh, by Marshall Brain or Marshall Brian or some, something like that. Uh, it's free it's online. definitely Brain. <laughs> I saw okay. it. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, but it's a definitely like an excellent uh, story in terms of like uh, um, alternate futurisms uh, that stem out of um, society moving into hyper-automation. Um, which is definitely where we are going. Um, and uh, the basic model is like you, you know, buy a share in this company and it entitles uh, you and one other person of your choice to have a membership in this new club, right? Which ends up being the new society, right? So it, it allows you it. to escape, escape the the uh, the prison uh, society and move into a community with this other society. That um, sounds lovely. All right, I gotta run. You guys, uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we're accepting both monetary input or sweat equity. Okay. To get your foot in the door. I can sweat. I'll help. Uh, so, I'll sweat. I'm constantly sweating. I'm sweating right now. I'll sweat with you. We'll sweat together. Yep. Um, so I look forward to talking. Talk, yeah, I look forward to yeah. talking to you guys again. Uh, yeah, I would so. love to dive deeper into like ecological stuff and and uh, uh, yeah. All right. right great next to time you, you come on, we should talk about the Zod and doing it for as free as possible. But Sounds lovely. All right. It's Cheers. great to meet you. It's great yep. to talk. So, Have a great day. All right, you, too. you too. See ya. Bye. Two things.